testing one, two, three. Am I making this pop? Is it suspiciously poppy, popular in here? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah, that's poppy enough. Wonderful. Yeah. If that sounds good, then we can get cracking. Are you recording? Should we go? Yeah, go. We're recording. It's urology. It's not rocket science. It's not even brain surgery. I can't believe the radiologist missed that. It stood out like dogs. You've got to have a sense of humour when you look at genitals, really. Bend over and assume the position. Bladder, most beautiful organ in the body. Talking urology with Dr Joseph Iskia and Dr Nathan Lorenchuk. A podcast series supported by Ipsen. Welcome back to Talking Urology. I'm Joseph Iskia, and this is the third, and some are saying thankfully final, instalment of the conference highlights from USAN's 2017 conference in Canberra. Let's get straight into it with what my mum described as the highlight of the conference, which was my talk on the role of early systemic treatment in oligometastatic disease. It was a point-counterpoint session with Shanka Siva, a radiation oncologist from Peter Mac in Melbourne, who was given the near-impossible task of arguing against me, but did quite a good job of making the case for metastasis-directed therapy in this setting. And I looked at this from the perspective of, uh, I know we can delay ADT if we give metastasis-directed therapy, and I know that either by surgery or radiation, we get very good local control, certainly at the doses that are appropriate for radiation, which you've got to go pretty high dose, but we're looking over 99% local control, and certainly with surgery, we see very few in-field recurrences. The argument that I made was we can do that and you do delay ADT, but inevitably most of these people will have an out-of-field recurrence. My, my discussion focused around are we doing these patients a disservice by not treating them early while their disease volume is low? It's because we know that disease volume is important. It is a surrogate marker for how it's going to respond to androgen deprivation, whether that be looking at the early ADT treatments, we've got uh, several meta-analyses looking at relatively old data that's it's arguable whether there's benefit in overall survival but certainly benefits in complications and um, disease progression and we've even got the messing trial while it was underpowered you don't need a large trial to show a large effect men lived longer in fact 84 percent chance of being alive greater chance of being alive at any time point if they'd had early ADT rather than delaying so this has really formed the basis of my argument is that we can do detastasis-directed therapy, but are we missing an opportunity to cure micrometastatic disease, some might say, but at least knock it on the head. I think one of the key things to realise is that there is no evidence in this oligometastatic disease comparing metastasis-directed therapy to uh, early ADT. And in the light of that, we're desperately in need of a trial in this space because we spend a lot of our MDMs discussing this exact topic. And it was remiss of me not to mention our very own TOAD, Timing of Androgen Deprivation Trial, which again showed a benefit for early ADT. But Shanker was not shaken by my eloquent argument and delivered this withering rebuke. Yeah, I mean, um, thanks for uh, debating with me, Joseph. I I found it was a really quite stimulating debate. From my perspective, I suppose I was uh, doing the case for metastasis-directed therapy. And in a lot of ways, our arguments are synergistic in a sense because we do recognise a lot of patients will actually recur. The majority of patients will recur, a majority of them will recur within two years. Um, but from my perspective, going through with uh, androgen deprivation and early systemic therapy is a medical roller coaster. Once you start on this, you're, you're, uh, the patient is pretty much committed to this for the remainder of their, their lifespan and switching between different agents. 
But I think the role of metastasis-directed therapy uh, is the potential to treat some, uh, add an extra line of therapy and potentially have uh, a localised therapy that can uh, be used in conjunction with the systemic therapy at a later time point. And so far, you're right, it's about patient selection and that low volume oligometastatic disease is the key. The evidence that we have in my interpretation of the data so far is that uh, the use of systemic therapies is most beneficial for high volume disease and in the biochemical recurrence setting we still don't have level one evidence to support the use of uh, uh, early initiation of immediate androgen deprivation. So we're talking about a patient population that may potentially benefit local, locally uh, directed therapies, whether that be surgical from a lymph node dissection, uh, stereotactic radiotherapy or, or uh, um, whole pelvis radiotherapy, whichever approach. Um, and the question is about balancing the toxicities of each approach and selecting the appropriate treatment approach for, for those patients. You're right though, these kind of uh, um, uh, opinions and, and uh, are largely non-evidence based. We have run a couple of clinical trials so far, particularly in Melbourne, uh, and these are due to report uh, relatively soon. And one of the studies I was involved with, uh, which is Popstar, uh, will hopefully have some results in only a handful of months time. Um, so in the absence of this kind of uh, high level evidence, we really should get involved in the clinical trials. Uh, and I think there is a, a new study being led from um, uh, Piet Ost uh, over the, in the Belgium from Ghent University, uh, which is piece five, uh, a study that's been run through Movember. And hopefully that's an opportunity as, uh, as us as our clinicians in Australia and New Zealand to, to join in such a study. So keep an eye out for Shanker the pop star. And next time you're in an MDT while discussing a man with oligometastatic disease and the radonk starts discussing the peace sign, you'll know what he's talking about. Next, a head-to-head -head comparison dear to all our hearts. Some said it couldn't be done. Some said it shouldn't be done. But one man stands tall in the controversial arena of the retrospective analyses comparing the effectiveness of surgery to radiation for the management of localised prostate cancer. I give you Laurie Klotz, and he discusses his talk. The title was uh, Surgery versus Radiation. Uh, what is the evidence about comparative effectiveness? And so there are now in the literature 14 comparative effectiveness trials, studies. Let me rephrase that. There are in the literature 14 studies that compare the mortality outcome of surgery versus radiation using propensity analysis to adjust for relevant covariance. Because the obvious problem is that you take a group of radiation versus surgery patients, the surgery patients tend to be healthier, often tend to be younger. So there are techniques to compensate for those variables called propensity adjustment. And beyond those 14, there's another five studies that use some other type of adjustment, one's called instrumental analysis, to adjust for the covariance. And what is striking about these studies is that essentially they're 100% consistent in showing that the prostate cancer mortality is roughly two times higher in the patients treated with radiation than surgery. Now, why should that be? Because the radiation is actually quite effective therapy for prostate cancer, particularly modern radiation. So there's several reasons why that may be. Uh, one, of course, is that the data is all uh, nonsense, that there is a systemic underlying bias involving every single one of these studies. In my opinion, that is not the most likely explanation. There's two others. 
One is that with starting with surgery, just like testicular cancer, for example, where you get a surgical grading and staging that drives subsequent management. With radiation, you don't have that. And I think it may be the, the benefit of surgical staging of the entire prostate, the lymph nodes, positive margins, role of adjuvant therapy, in the long run may drive improved uh, outcome in terms of mortality. The second is some very recent data that comes from Ross Ealing's lab in the UK that compared the outcome of patients with BRCA mutations treated with surgery and radiation. And the striking observation is that the BRCA mutated patients, this is, in other words, germline BRCA mutation patients, did extremely poorly with radiation. It's as if it was completely ineffective. And this has not been identified before. And that could be an explanation because since the BRCA mutation patients represent a very high risk cohort, much higher risk of dying of cancer, maybe they are accounting for some of the increased deaths in the radiation cohort. And maybe this explains why, if you look at mortalities and endpoint, again, most patients with prostate cancer are not dying of disease. If you look at mortality endpoint, you see more deaths in the radiation than the surgery group. So my message is radiation clearly has a role. It's good treatment, but let's move on from the rhetoric that the mortality outcomes from these are the same based on published data. It clearly is not the case. Laurie makes some very interesting points and food for thought, especially regarding the BRCA mutation prostate cancers. But in the next MDT, I can't help but smile sheepishly as I push the file across the table to my radiation oncology colleague for the 75-year-old man with ischemic heart disease, COAD, and a BMI of 45 for the treatment of his Gleason 8 prostate cancer. So it was time to put the conference convener, Nathan Lorenchuk, behind the other side of the microphone and give us a brief wrap-up of the program as he saw it. Nathan, as the convener of this year's meeting, what were some of your highlights or what do you see as some of the emerging themes to come out of the talks? Look, it's been a fantastic meeting and uh, uh, my hat's off to Shomik Sengupta, my scientific convener, for uh, really helping pull this all together. Look, there have been some, um, apart from having wonderful international and uh, national guests showcase the best of urology at present, I think there were some emerging themes to come out of this year's meeting. Uh, in particular, um, the questioning of the role of MRI, its uh, place pre-biopsy and in uh, active surveillance strategies, uh, knowing your own uh, local rates of uh, positivity was very important. Again, PSMA PET-CT being done increasingly for primary staging and restaging has really taken off. And again, we just don't have the histopathologic data to back a lot of that up. So it's still a place ripe for uh, studies. I think uh, moving in, into oligometastatic disease, again, it was good to have uh, both a radiation oncology perspective and, and of, of course, your own perspective on this. I think uh, other themes emerging. Um, certainly, we learned to be a bit smarter at our perioperative management, uh, perhaps uh, using less fluids in larger cases and uh, thinking about the length of DVT prophylaxis. I think uh, in terms of uh, other uh, areas that were looked at quite closely. We've seen the emergence of new thoughts about Peyronie's disease, whether it be injectables and aggressive surgery where required. Um, the role of botulinum toxin it, it seems to be ever expanding. Uh, it, with stone surgery, the um, comeback of PCNL with the mini perk 
has been interesting as well as the development of uh, better and smaller instruments for our ureteroscopy and of course the single-use ureteroscopes. Uh, we saw also the ever-present um, and emerging role of cytoreductive nephrectomy coming about with the new tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, and I suppose finally, um, from my perspective, uh, to see the, uh, the, the reiteration of the uh, need to be more aggressive to have a success in bladder cancer. And, uh, you know, personally for me, on the back of uh, the launch of bladdercancer.org.au and our new patient booklet, I think um, bladder cancer was brought to the front of the uh, front and centre of this meeting and uh, showing us again we're doing a pretty poor job with muscle invasive disease. But, um, you know, we, we have at least now got some good local patient resources available at bladdercancer.org.au. So I'm really looking forward to Dan Moon and Declan Murphy in Melbourne uh, come 2018. Fantastic, Nathan. It's been a Absolutely magnificent program. I know you've worked tirelessly, you're in Showmeek, and I congratulate you. Well Thank, done. Thanks, sir. Awards were given out. I didn't win one, so I can only assume they were not for excellence in podcast humour. At the gala dinner, two prestigious awards were given to members for outstanding service to USANS over their careers. The Urological Society of Australia and New Zealand Medal was awarded to Dr David Malouf, where particular note was made of his leadership in his role as president during the Christchurch earthquake. And Dr Andrew Brooks was awarded the Fellow of the Society for his tireless contribution to urology, with a chorus of hear-hears echoing across the room when describing his inspirational mentorship to several generations of aspiring urologists. Congratulations, David and Andrew. Next, let's talk to Marlon Pereira, who was the winner of the most prestigious research award for trainees, the Villas Marshall Prize, for his research from his PhD on the protective role of zinc in contrast-induced nephropathy. I'm chatting to Marlon Pereira, who is a trainee currently in Queensland and is the winner of the Villas Marshall Prize this year for his research presentation titled the renoprotective role of zinc preconditioning against radiographic contrast media induced nephrotoxicity. We've asked him just to give us a quick highlight of his talk. The question we asked was, how can we as urologists protect the kidneys against contrast nephropathy? It's a growing problem obviously for urologists. Uh, so we had the hypothesis that zinc preconditioning uh, used intravenously could protect against contrast nephropathy. So we trialled a in vitro model, a cellular model, and uh, essentially exposed cells, kidney cells, to contrast media prior uh, with prior zinc preconditioning. And we found that uh, zinc preconditioning resulted in improved cell survival and reduction in the generation of reactive oxygen species. So the results are early, but they are promising. And I think translation of this work into small animal and human models are required. The winner of the Keith Kirkland Prize for the best research done by a trainee not in full-time research was Amila Sirawardana for his research on robot-assisted salvage node dissection for oligometastatic nodal disease detected by Gallium PSMA PET-CT, a multi-centre retrospective series. Congratulations to Amila and the team in Sydney. Now, let's chat to Richard Grills from Geelong, who won the ABV Platinum Trophy Award for Research Innovation. Let's hear from Richard. Well, Joseph, we um, a project where we looked at all of the uh, flexible pyloscopy cases done in Geelong over a, a two and a half year period. And fortunate in Geelong that we've got three hospitals, uh, 
and we're able to capture all of the cases done at those three hospitals over a two and a half year period. And we were looking at um, uh, how often the scopes broke, uh, how much it cost to fix them, um, and the durability. We found that um, scopes do break, and they break at the bout, either need to be repaired or replaced uh, about every 13 years. And what does that breakage rate equate to? $282 per, per case, if you add that on, if you, if you average the total cost of instrument repairs and replacements over that two and a half year period. And could they identify any causes of the breakages? And what are the predictors? Is it Kernsey? Uh, <laughs> uh, um, I think, fortunately, you weren't a registrar with us in Geelong during the study period, which might have altered the data a little bit, Joseph. Um, now, interestingly, and in contrast to some other studies that have been done, we, we found that there were no actual predictors. So harsh. Lucky I didn't tell him I put small holes in the tips of the index fingers in all the gloves in his examination room. So, there really was only one question left for me to ask. And where are you going to put your, Ab, uh, your AbbVie Platinum trophy? Is it next to Carlton's last trophy? Because that was a long time ago. Um, well, it'll, it'll go to the, the trophy cabinet at home. Not, not a lot of room there, of course, Joseph. <laughs> I'll find a spot for it. Fantastic. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Joseph. It must be a very small cabinet. Let's also mention some of the other award winners. Congratulations also go to Handu Ree from Queensland. He was the winner of the Bouse Trophy, which goes to the best scientific podium presentation. For his study, metformin can reduce cardiovascular risk factors in men treated with androgen deprivation therapy. Well done, Handu and his team in Brisbane. Jeremy Grummet was the winner of the Elben G Prize for the best poster by a full member of USANS for his poster, robotic MRI ultrasound fusion transperineal biopsy using the IS robot Mona Lisa. Technique, safety and accuracy. And the winner of the Low Arnold Award in Female and Functional Urology for the best podium or poster presentation went to Lewis Chan. Lewis has been one of the leading lights in research in this field. Well done, Lewis. Canberra also saw the 22nd ANZUNS Australian-New Zealand Urological Nurses Meeting convened by Kath Schubach and Carla D'Amico, with both national and international guest speakers covering a range of topics. Let's hear from Kath discuss her highlights of the program. Oh, thanks very much, Joe, for inviting me in. Um, I think the highlights for our meeting this year were uh, both Carla and myself were trying to highlight the advanced um, practice in nurse-led clinics um, and also some leadership in nursing. So some of our, our keynote speaker was uh, Professor Mai Krishnasamy um, and also a nurse practitioner in sexual health um, and just looking at their scopes of practice and the advanced scopes of practice and but also um, a theme of leadership overall so that you know the novice to the advanced practice nurse could take something away from it. What's been one of the major changes? Is it, is it the nurse cystoscopists? Is it, they have an increasing role of the clinic? I think um, it's an overall um, learning um, and also I think the partnership and the collaboration with the urologists um, because we know from research that with collaboration of both the nurse practitioner and the urologists that our patients have better outcomes with that. How many nurses are nurse practitioners? I know it's a lot of extra study goes into it. How many do we have in Australia? Quite a few coming up in urology. Um, of course, Helen Crow leads the way as the first 
nurse practitioner in urology. Um, um, but I think even the highlights of our um, of our presentations and the way that how our program has grown, that it's very, uh, Sandra and I were talking about, it's about how we used to present case studies, but now we're actually presenting research. And I think that's really increasing our profile of professionalism of nursing. And the nurse practitioner role, because I think it is one of the hot topics, how does that compare to, say, urology CNC, a clinical nurse consultants? Well, I think we did discuss that, and that was a theme that came out in our in our um, in our sessions. And I think what it was was it's more about um, you know it's not for everybody, but there are lots of roles there that, and if you've got a vision or you've got a, a you know whether it's broad or narrow, you've got and a drive to pursue it, you can take any pathway. So it doesn't necessarily mean we all have to be nurse practitioners but you can have fulfilment out of being a clinical nurse specialist and a consultant and many other roles within urology. Excellent. So what was, what was another one of the hot topics to come out of this year's conference? I think um, one thing that I think um, took a lot of people away was uh, when Mai mentioned that we're not just a nurse. And I think, you know, a lot of us describe ourselves as that. And it's about just how we're going to articulate what we do as a nurse. And one of the things that I took away from that was that she talked about personalised medicine. And, we, and you know, our, our colleague, urology colleagues, always talk about personalised medicine. But she said for us to nurse is to look at nursing as a therapy. And I just thought that that was really um, engaging and really something to think about. And I asked Kath, what does she expect to be the hot topics for future nursing meetings? Well, again, I think it's, you know, talking about nurses and, and what they're going to pursue and how they're going to pursue um, what we do as a, as a profession. And Kay will just take this further in Melbourne. That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Kath. It's been a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you. Now, let's hear from Sandra Warden, a nurse practitioner from Redcliffe Hospital in Queensland and winner of the prestigious Diamond Scholarship awarded by Boston Scientific. I asked Sandra to tell us a little more about the award and what she plans to do. Yeah, sure. It's um, it's $5,000 to go towards uh, a professional development activity. And what I've decided to do is to go to the Bourne Conference um, in the UK and also to do a site visit to watch how some other nurse practitioners do their perform their practice. Um, there was a white paper in 2010 called Freeing the NHS or something like that and they've since that time they've had a lot of health reforms and so they've been able to create a lot of change in terms of patient care and patient experience and access to care and so that's what I really am going to have a look at to see how they've been able to do that. Are they doing things better than we are here in Australia? Are there, are there things that you hope that you're hoping to achieve that they do? Well, it's not so much the specifics of what they do as much as expanding my mind to see how other people do different do things differently. So it may not be that I bring back specific ideas, but it's about expanding my mind so that I can think better about what we need here. Well, that's why, I mean, clearly this is about, you know, developing leaders and, uh, you know, whether it's urologists or nurses, you need people that are mixing with the best in the world. And yeah. it sounds like it's a wonderful opportunity yeah. for you to do that. So congratulations. Yeah, and you. when you come back, what are your obligations when you get back? Do you need to give talks or a presentation anyway? Sure. So what I need to do is uh, provide a report to Anzuns and that's a, a written report and a verbal report as well at next year's meeting. And also I'd like to report back to my local area at Quans and also to the hospital, of course, you know, bring back ideas and thoughts and things like that. And there might be things that 
they see us do that that they think is a great idea you know so it's all about exchanging ideas and just stimulating that thought process editorial note it was actually the 2010 health white paper equity and excellence liberating the nhs which outlined the government's vision for the nhs Next, I'm chatting to David Gray, a nurse practitioner at the Australian Prostate Cancer Research Centre in Melbourne, who has had three great successes in the past year with the birth of his first child, the prize for best paper for the Anzans program and the Bulldogs winning a premiership. I dared not ask him to rank them in fear of upsetting his family. So instead, I asked him to tell us about the subject of his paper. Yeah, thanks, Joe. So it's a um, it's a six month fellowship position that we offer at our centre, where nurses would leave their place of employment uh, and come and work with us uh, for six months, and they set a series of objectives that they want to meet uh, to further their n- nursing professionally. So it could be in the way of um, learning more about sexual function issues, uh, going and watching the guys operate in theatre, um, you know, doing prostatectomies, uh, spending time with the radiotherapy department as well. So things that they might not get the ability to do at their current place of work, but they come and do this observership with us and we enable them to do that. Is it only urology CNCs or are you getting like nums for urology wards in hospitals? Generally people with a uh, with a clinical background and still with that patient contact. So the grand plan is that when they come and work with us, uh, once they've finished their six months with us, then they go back to their place of employment and then introduce those learnings as well. So typically a lot of the nurses mightn't have had experience with sexual function, for example. It's not really talked about too much with the nurses. So when they go back, then they'll start setting up erectile dysfunction clinics, teaching the guys how to inject safely and, and what to do with adverse events as well. So How many people? have come through so far? Uh, We're up to our fourth nurse. Uh, We don't discriminate. We've got a nurse that's come through from uh, Wellington in New Zealand and our current nurse is from Perth. So fantastic. And who is it? Who? How do you apply for this position? Uh, So we advertise through the Anzons uh, nursing group. So ideally those with a who would be suitable for it should be a member of our group. Uh, So we just do typically like a job application process for that. Fantastic Dave. Thank you very much. Cool. Thanks Joe. I assume you do need a secondary education, so Collingwood supporters need not apply. All right, all right. I was only joking. There's no need to break into my house. Next, I'm chatting to Cara Webb, whose disinterest in football is matched only by her passion for urology. Cara won Best Poster for her study titled Study and Evaluation of a Nurse-Led Postoperative Outpatient Clinic. So we had a look at the waitlist at our institution and the uh, demand was pretty high on on the waitlist. So the urology unit looked at various strategies uh, to address this situation and um, introducing a urology nurse-led clinic for post-operative reviews um, was implemented. We looked at five different surgical procedures that were appropriate for a review by nurses and we set up a weekly clinic at the beginning of 2015. With the introduction of our nurse-led clinic and other measures, we were able to show an overall decrease in our wait list with our urgent referrals for new patients that were delayed past their due recall date down by 95% and our review patients down by 46%. Well, thank you, Cara, and congratulations. Well done. Thank you. And that wraps up our Talking Urology Conference highlights. I hope you enjoyed it and thank you to all the guests and speakers who were so generous with their time and expertise. 
Thanks to Ipsen for their wonderful support. And I hope you can tune in for our second season of Talking Urology Landmark Paper Discussions, coming soon. So go to the website, talkingurology.com.au, follow us on Twitter, or forward your complaints through Eddie Maguire to talkingurology at gmail.com. This has been Talking Urology with Dr. Joseph Iskia and Dr. Nathan Lorenchuk, a podcast series supported by Ipsen. Thank you.